I'm Charlie Gibson, and I welcome you. I welcome you to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. And that leaves who to say hello. I'm Kate Gibson, and I'm only going to welcome you once. That doesn't mean you're not welcome. It just means that I don't overstate myself. (laughs) We have for you today an author who's tough to read, to be frank, Um, but what is really important. This is a bit of a different approach for us in this podcast, but we are now just past marking the one-year date from which the United States withdrew from Afghanistan. And things, needless to say, contrary to the limited freedom that existed there for the previous 20 years, there is now great repression, particularly, particularly among women. Nahid Shahalimi has written a book in which she interviews, talks to 13 women from different backgrounds, and all of whom basically tell the story of what repression exists there now. There, maybe I can say, hope that things have to change and will. Not to mention the layers upon layers upon layers of scars because of the repeated trauma of civil war and foreign invasion. I cannot, I mean, as he had says so beautifully in this book, we as Afghanis have not had time to mourn anything. Because one war piles on the other. We are still here is the name of the book. We are still here, Nahid Shahalimi, S-H-A-H-A-L-I-M-I. And the 13 women that she talks to come from positions with negotiating with the Taliban, filmmakers, musicians, civil rights workers, protesters, people who are dealing in the internet, because that may be important for getting the word out from Afghanistan. As I say, so many different viewpoints but women who are very much oppressed and having to figure out how now to deal with the current realities in Afghanistan. I mean, this conversation really, really sobered me. When I I saw the pictures a year ago, I thought, boy, that's a shame. But to think through the real implications of what this meant for women that had enjoyed relative freedom for the last 20 years, it is a message of this book that I think they will not go quietly back into the night, but that they are going to need all sorts of solidarity and support to accomplish that freedom again. And yet some of the women raise the question whether there isn't just fatigue on the part of the rest of the world and having to deal with Afghanistan and the feeling among some Afghanis that the world doesn't care anymore because they're just sick of caring and they have been caring too long. Women cannot get educated now publicly in Afghanistan past the age of 12. Women are told that they must marry early, that they must bear children, that they must stay home, that they can't travel. Even she points out, which is one interesting touch, she says even the mirrors in Afghanistan have been painted over, I guess pointing to the fact that it is vain for women to look into mirrors. Anyway, it's an important conversation, we think. We're going to let it run somewhat long, but I think that you will be very, very taken with what she has to say. So here is our conversation with Nahid Shahalimi. Welcome, Nahid Shahalimi. I am so excited to have you here. We are still here 
I couldn't put it down. It's such an important book. And I want to talk about the timing of the book. When did you decide to chronicle these women's stories? And then how did you go about collecting them? What was your methodology there? First of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's lovely to be here. The idea didn't come from me. It actually came from my German publisher. And we were literally in the middle of putting up lists during the first two weeks of the takeover because we knew that, you know, I knew that there was a very, very small window that we had. And the 31st was the date that it was supposed to be the last day of evacuation. And something told us that it won't be the last day. It would be way before. And that's what happened. And then my German publisher came and said, we got to do something. You can't just watch. I think that the whole world was crying for Afghanistan and especially for Afghan women and its minority groups because we knew and they knew what could await them, which they weren't wrong. And then these women, to be honest, first of all, they were in no condition to speak. I'll be honest. Many of them were in no condition to speak. Everybody was busy with evacuating the ones that we knew were not going to survive, not even a week there. Let me ask you this too, because you mentioned you wanted to include as other women. How did you go about selecting these women? Why these women's stories? What sort of spectrum of perspective were you looking for? I was getting frustrated, to be honest. I was looking at the media, mainstream media, and I saw that others, once more, were speaking for Afghan women, for Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. about Afghanistan. Most of these women, I've either worked with them in Afghanistan, work with them now, or known them through, you know, through the network, because it's a very small circle when you work in Afghanistan. And especially, these women are not any kind of regular women. These are the best in their fields. These are really experts, the so-called experts, I always say, and I don't mean this in any way, shape, or form. And or insulting it or in any way. But there's no way that anybody would understand the context and the fabric of Afghanistan, which is so complex. But the ones that truly come from there, speak their languages, have lived there and live it every single day to a certain degree. And I'm not talking about the likes of the wonderful Christiana Mampour or Lise Doucette or Kathy Gannon. I'm not talking about these journalists and these connoisseurs, but I'm talking about this new wave of so-called experts that came to be right after the 15th of August, just because you've spent a few years in Afghanistan does not make you an expert on that region, nor in Afghanistan. And they were filling the spaces, and these spaces belong to these women. But yet, they were not being asked. And also, it's very, very important here to add that the narratives that we're building were this one-sided narratives that have been building in the last 20 years. I wrote another book in 2017 about inspiring Afghan women. And I went to Afghanistan and in all corners of the country, under each stone, as you would say, you would find an inspiring woman. And that didn't mean that they had to have a PhD degree in order to be that, but they knew the context and the fabric of those that area, which was very different from the other areas. So this was what I was seeing. So I made sure that we had a, like a list of all of them. And the first selection was really get the best of the best that are in the different fields. But it was very important for me to get various fields, not only in one field, politicians, this, this, this. Because in order to understand Afghan women holistically, you got to know many different Afghan fields and women that are involved in that field. Nahid, you point out that you have women from so many different perspectives and so many different professions, but they all tell a very similar story. They talk of beatings, assaults, civilian deaths perpetrated by the Taliban. Ariana Saeed says there's a Taliban fatwa against her calling for her decapitation. Hosna Jalil says the Taliban is out to destroy everything achieved in the 20 years since 2001 when the Taliban was disposed. And you say 
as of August 2021, there is little hope. But so many you talk to seem somewhat hopeful or mildly optimistic. What should we be? I think, and this goes generally as a motto of my life, if you do not have hope, then what else do you have? I think the biggest motor that makes you run and wake up in the morning is hope. I always have seen the glass full. I can write about five books just on my own life stories, and each one of these women can write five each for all of the the tragedies that we have been through, all the traumas that we have seen throughout our lives as an Afghan girl, just to be born as an Afghan girl in Afghanistan. The fight started the day that we were born, I think, just because of the gender. And it's a curse in a way, but at the same time, it's such a blessing. Because if you have this hope, I'm telling you this because I've seen it in so many. I've seen more hope, especially in the last year, not only through this book, but many of these women are in committees and steering committees that we're working. They're in UN women committees, EU committees, and we're trying to cross-pollinate. And all of us know each other. We kind of get that tiny little hope that we had when we wrote this book, which was almost a year ago, has tripled and quadrupled now because of the support that we have, the hope that we see in everybody else. You talked earlier, too, in this interview about Western media and its relationship with the Taliban. After September 11th, 2001, the Taliban were, you know, Taliban bad. And then you talk about how in 2021, Time magazine writes about the leader of the Taliban as being one of the most influential people of the year. Uh, Another woman writes about a CNN correspondent who says, I'm making history standing right here with the Taliban. What has changed in the Western media's relationship to the Taliban? I think it's a mixture of that plus, I would say, honestly, exploitation, personal gains. And I say by personal gains, I mean calling the Taliban leaders and taking selfies with them. And a woman doing that during a time where half the population is locked in their homes with a draconian ideology that says, yes, you're only there to produce, basically. That alone is a no-go in my book. And then you had these journalists that were taking pictures, normalizing the fact that these people that we called terrorists before the 15th of August, and they're still terrorists, they're still on the FBI most wanted list. Three of them, the Haqqanis, are still there. We still have that label officially and calling them exclusive interviews. This is not exclusivity. With all due respect, and I say this again, with all due respect, the white skin, the blue eyes, and the blonde hair is the privilege that you have to go in Afghanistan where I can't go and I'll get kidnapped within five minutes and my body will be found within the next two days. So that is a privilege that you have that you didn't have before. Now, I'll give you a data which came out from the EU. 83% of Afghan men within Afghanistan want their girls and their women to go to school and work. This is facts. This is a survey. I mentioned that some of the women you talk to seem somewhat hopeful, mildly optimistic. And you say, If you don't have hope, what do you have? But Hazrat Nazimi says human rights will not lose their validity and the democratic spirit will take an Afghan form. Even the Taliban will not be able to stop it. Fatima Gailani says if the Taliban will not listen to the Afghan people, they will lose. And Maniza Wafek, I hope I pronounced these names correctly, has the Taliban changed? Has the Taliban changed? No, but Afghan women have. They seem to be saying, we had a limited taste of freedom from 2001 to 2021, and you can't reverse, you can't reverse the belief that things can be different. Should we put faith in their optimism that things indeed can be different? 
or are we going to just have to go through a long period of darkness? I think that the long period of darkness has a limit to it as well. And I think, unfortunately, we will have to go through some. I don't know how long, but this cannot go on this way. The international pressure is on them. The women will not let go of this. As we know, there's like tons of things that we have been working on in the last year. And slowly, we're now putting it out with the recommendations and the committees and the robust UN mandates and all of that. The Afghan women have been involved in this last year in writing all of those. It will have to come an end or change form to a certain degree because the women of Afghanistan, you can see them. They're still on the streets of Kabul. They're still protesting. And yes, once you have the taste of freedom, there's nothing. that there's The rate of suicide has risen it's incredible how many women are committing suicide because they don't see any perspective for the future. But yet, at the same time, while they realize that that's the only thing they could do, they go out and protest. A couple of days ago, they just opened a library. Women opened a library in defiance to the Taliban. They will probably get beaten up. They will probably get picked up. I hope that they're not tortured, but that will happen. But how many of these women are they going to kill? All of them? Because the forces, especially the diaspora that was outside, and the ones that the new diaspora, and I call them new diaspora, I don't even know what the term is for them now, the leaders of the civil society, this vibrant civil society, they're out, like some of the women in this book. But the work still continues. Not to get too personal, but how did you deal with the emotional trauma of this book? You had one month to do it. You're reading all of this stuff. I mean, how did you take care of yourself while you were putting together and editing this book? by saying that we never have time to mourn. I'll be honest, 15th of August, it broke me. It broke me to my core. And then I only had maybe a few hours before I could get back on my feet because I knew that I was needed. The contacts that I had were way more important than anything I felt. We try to have these moments where we can pick each other up. We try to take care of ourselves. As a mom, I have learned how to take care of myself because if I'm not doing well, my daughters aren't doing well. So you find these mechanisms to cope with it. Maybe I'll ask this question and I'll answer it too. Whether we will be ever okay with the trauma? I doubt it because every single time a regime changes, everything comes back up. And as you get older, it touches your core in a different way. But at the same time, I'll come back to hope, Charlie. 15th of August brought us back together in a way that we never were this much together. The solidarity and the humbleness of all of these women, they have not learned how to be healthy with it because the cause is now Afghanistan and Afghan women and its people. And finally, it took the fall of Kabul for all of us, at least the women, to come together and really bond in a way that we can solidly make this movement into this global thing that has stood against a terrorist group that has terrorized and killed thousands. You point out that Afghanistan has really never had the time to grieve or mourn because it's just one war, one battle following another. How much effect has that had, do you think, on the Afghan state of mind and then on the outside world's state of mind. Roya Sadat says the world is now just accustomed to Afghan tragedy. So does the world care, Nahid? And what effect does that lack of time to grieve or mourn really have on the Afghans? The Afghans will be grieving for a very long time. They're still grieving. They've been grieving for almost 50 years now. And it is so horrible because it is a generational trauma. This generational trauma will have its effects for years and decades to come. And 
unfortunately for those of us, for example, my parents and my grandparents, it'll be too late to even deal with. They will take this to their grave because it is very difficult to deal with this. And when it comes to the international community, international fatigue kicked in way before the 15th of August. To a certain degree, I always say, I mean, can you blame people for always listening to the same kind of stories to them because it's so far? I can tell you the nuances of every single one of them and the differences, but somebody that is so far away that has been fed with a narrative that has been always one-sided, it has never been a full narrative. There have been inspirational stuff that happened in Afghanistan in the past 20 years. How many of them do people know? We do, because we have the data and you say that there's almost 60,000 registered business women that were in Afghanistan working. And we're not talking about only making jams, you know, these home startups. We're talking about steel factories. We're talking about printing factories. These belong to women, Afghan women in the last 20 years. If you don't know about all of this context, how else are you going to not have the international fatigue with all of these crises that are happening in the world too? So it's not to say that we blame. I think that if we allow the Afghans themselves to this time own this process at least, to give them ownership of this process, it will make life a lot easier for everybody. Let me ask a couple of questions about the situation that the Taliban now faces, that they are in control of Afghanistan. As I mentioned, Fatima Gailani says, if the Taliban will not listen to the Afghan people, they will lose. But some things have changed in the last 20 years. And Hosna Jalil said to you, the Taliban needs international legitimacy in order to govern. They need financial support, and 70% of the population is now 24 and under. They haven't known this kind of oppression and will rebel. Another one of your interviewees points out that the internet and the social media have expanded. So the Taliban, according to these women, needs international support to be able to govern. They have a tremendous problem with hunger in the country. There apparently seems to be widespread starvation. Do you have any hope that they care and that this will make any difference? I think fighting as terrorists or as extremist groups to win a war for two decades is one thing. Governing a state is another, which they have absolutely no idea. They're literally failing miserably, as we see. There's no constitution. There's no mechanisms that are set. They're not even a homogenous group themselves. They're fighting against each other. Whether the Taliban will care about Afghan people, I personally don't think that they care as much. 97% of the country is in the brink of starvation. That's 97%. And almost all female households do not have enough food to eat, almost all of them. Although that the international community, World Food Program and UNICEF and everybody has been trying to reach to them, they haven't been getting the aid that was supposed to be given to them. Are they going to be any different? With a lot of pressure, because of this legitimization that they need, they cannot rule a government as a terrorist group. How long? They already did it for one year, failed, and they can't. They don't have any support from the outside. The Federal Reserve of Afghanistan is one thing, the frozen assets, which is not much when you really think about it, 9 to 10 billion. That is not much. Afghanistan probably needs approximately 6 billion, something like that, per year. So they're going to be done within one year, and they're not going to use it for that. We know that because they're going to use it for their own causes, which is definitely not feeding the country. So they're in a very bad position. What they're going to do is going to depend on who they wash their hands with, which is right now China and Russia. So politically, this region is really, really, it's the travel ban is extremely important. Right now, the UN is pushing for a travel ban for the Taliban. You cannot have these people go freely all over the world. 
and hold their talks and do these meetings in order to reach something that God knows what it is. They don't have a strategy. We don't even know their national policy, nothing. So it is going to be something that we have to watch very carefully. I don't think anybody has that concrete answer. And whatever they do, it's an assumption. Despite the hope that they might make gestures to get some international support, and there was concern, I think, in the international community about the starvation that you talk about. And then we find they were hiding an al-Qaeda leader right in the middle of Kabul. How big a setback is that? The international community has a huge leverage on the Taliban. The deal that was made between the U.S. and the Taliban before the peace process with the Afghans started, there were only two criteria. A withdrawal from Afghanistan, where the Taliban would not be attacking the U.S. citizens, and the Taliban cannot use the soil of Afghanistan harboring terrorism and making buddies with all of their friends that are terrorists. The first one, they got out, so that's done. But we know of recruitments, we know of madrasas, we know that young boys, when they graduated in March, they were graduating with a sword and their flags all over them. We know that these madrasas even, or these little camps are building. We know that recruitments from outside are there. And obviously we knew that, I mean, al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda, he must have been there for months. So if all of this just revealed like this, and the CIAs and the FBIs of the world knew about this. So my question is, what happened to the deal that was made? They didn't do anything that they said they would do when they took over. Obviously, we see this in, after one year, decree after decree. There's over 30 decrees that are limiting just women. That's from not being able to travel without a chaperone to not going to school after the sixth grade. So how much more do they have to do in order for the international community to step in and say enough is enough? Let me ask you, one of the things that touched me the most was the women who were lucky enough to escape acknowledged that they were lucky. And the women who chose to stay made a point of saying, I do not resent those that left. But all of them talk about the importance of female solidarity in this movement. How do you create solidarity when some are forced to leave and only some choose to stay? You create solidarity by not ever letting go of that connection, which we didn't. From the day that everybody left, they have been in touch. They started their work underground, often helping as much as we can. That is one side. But the work itself kept on going. Manisha Wafer's offices, one of them, she was able to open, and she has her staff on the ground, for example. Mariam Safi just brought out a survey, Beshnao, which means here, it is literally the most legitimate data that she collected when it comes to gender gap reports, and WPS, Women, Peace, and Security has it, UN has it. So the work has been going on, and that is how you build solidarity, knowing that I put every single, every single project that I had on ice on the 15th. And I had a couple of books that were supposed to come out completely different from what I'm doing right now. A couple of projects that the company was doing, everything was put on ice. So everybody did that. And solidarity means lobbying. We have been lobbying tirelessly so that capacity building starts again, so that all of these things, because everything is shut down. That is solidarity because we need people that are outside as strong as we need people inside. Let me finish with a question asked by one of your interviewees. You point out that It's interesting that every one of the women that Kate talks about who have left all say they want to go back, that they want to get back into Afghanistan. Second of all, you point out, and I think this whole book says you need to listen to the voices of Afghan women because those are the authentic voices. Don't listen to the outside experts. But Hila Lamar, who you talk to, asks, what stage of grief are we in? Denial, 
anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. How do you answer her question? I would say a little bit of all. It's a little bit of everything, to be honest. The 15th, I remember that everybody said, we're not working. We ended up being in many interviews and did the work because it's just too much trauma. So depression comes in those days. Acceptance is that we have accepted that this group is ruling and that we have to start in a lot of the projects literally from zero, even before zero, even if that exists. We've accepted that we will have to be diplomatically correct in voicing our voices so that it is heard in the right platforms. That's why earlier I said, I'm going to try not to dig my grave deeper than I already have. <laughs> and how dare I be emotional as a woman? And I always say this is much bigger than Afghanistan and Afghan women. If you look at it, to answer that question, isn't that the case of when we speak about women generally? The fact that Kate and I are sitting here and doing what we do is not a given. We fought for this. Women fought for this. Women died for this so that we do what we do. But yet, again, we make this mistake of accepting as feminists. Feminists should be enraged that there is a woman in this world that cannot, that a young girl that cannot go to school. We should be enraged. This is much bigger than Afghanistan. This is much bigger than me. This is much bigger than this book. This is for all women in the world. This is a U.S. podcast. The little American girl that has less rights today in the U.S. than her mother did a few months ago, or that she did a few months ago. We're talking about the U.S. One of the democracies, big democracies of the world. Poland, same thing. So we're rolling back on rights that we have fought so hard on. The parallels of Afghan women and women all over the world are very close, much closer. So connected, we're much more connected than when we think we are. And we have to fight and become solidaire together if we are to make a world that is sustainable and peaceful and just. It's about justice at the end of the day. We Are Still Here is the book. Nahid Shahalimi is the author. The stars of the book are the 13 women that she talks to, all of whom come from different perspectives, but all of whom mourn for their country now and want to make things different. We so much appreciate your being here. We Are Still Here, as Margaret Atwood says in her foreword, that is a considerable statement in and of itself. We are still here. All the best to you, my friend. All the best. Yes. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it was a joy and lovely speaking with both of you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Nahid Shahalimi, we have a tradition of rapid-fire questions on the show, but we wanted to adapt them to your subject matter. So here we go, rapid-fire. Afghan writers that Americans should be reading. Who are they? Nadia Hashimi, Atiya Bawi, um, Khaled Husseini, um, Waslat Hasrat Nazimi. I think it's in German. Hers is only in German. And many more. What's the most influential book in your life? The Book of Life by Krishnamurti. Why? 
because it humbles me and brings me down to earth every day as I read one page. If Afghani women were to read one book, and so many of them obviously can't, but if Afghani women were to read one book, what should it be? The Handmaid's Tale. Hmm. Mm. Why? It was my first English book that I ever read. I had a dictionary. It took me about two weeks to read it. I couldn't understand every single word. After the first few pages, I understood exactly what she meant. And I wrote that in a letter to her when I asked her to write a statement in this book. I think Afghan women would understand that things are not as different. It could be as fragile as outside as them. So they're not the only ones. Let's say tomorrow we were able to get you a one-hour meeting with Joe Biden. What would the topic sentence be of what you would say to him? Oh, if I had an hour with Joe Biden, I would probably take that hour and bring some of the women in this book to use that hour effectively so that they can convince him that if they leave Afghanistan the way it is, it would be much more harmful than it was before 9-11. And Nahid, in five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Well, that's a tough one. What would I like the rest of my life to be? I would like to be able to do what I do today. And that is connect the dots and preserve, especially preserve, my culture and traditions. Good. That's more than five, but we'll take it. But I love it. I think it's important and I like it. We will totally take it. (laughs) Kate, we have let the interview run long and... um, I do want to ask you what you take away from it, but we I should point out that we normally would be talking to an independent bookstore owner or manager at this point, but we thought what she had to say was worth extending a little bit, and so as not to prolong the podcast itself, we'll get back to an independent bookstore next week. So what'd you take away? First, one of the lines that struck me in the book, Faresh Furo, who's in charge of a coding school for girls in Afghanistan and is educating women in computer programming, quotes the poet Rumi and says, where there is ruin, there is hope for treasure. As I read this book, I cling to any optimism this book has to offer because in some ways it's a very dark book because it's such a dark time in Afghanistan. These women seem very reluctant to go back to where they were. They say, we are not the same women. And I hope that is true. I hope the international community recognizes their struggle. I think one of the points she makes in the book very eloquently and that the other women make as well is that for whatever reason, the United States sort of tabled issues with women when they sat down to negotiate with the Taliban. I hope that the international recognition that the Taliban is so hoping for is held in peril because of the way they treat women. I am... What is it we like to say in my house? I am maybe hopeful, but not optimistic. What do you take away? I so thought it was important to quote so many of the women by name that she talked to. One I didn't mention, a woman named Mina Sharif, asks a good question. And it really is the question that I think long-term is important. What has happened to the soul of my people? Will they long-term accept what has gone on there and that the Taliban are in control? Or will there be some kind of internal movement encouraged by international support that will change the realities of that country? There's one really interesting part of one beginning, and I don't have the name of the 
woman who says it, but she writes ABC in the native language. She just writes ABC in that language and then says 70% of the women in Afghanistan can't read this. 70%. And the other statistic, television people are always interested in stat facts. The other statistic that she points out is that such a large percentage of the Afghan people don't support the government, even men, and or don't believe in what is happening there. And yet it's happening. What are the long-term implications of that? What has happened to the soul of my people? Well, I also think one of the chapters, too, talks brilliantly about the cycle of poverty and the fact that the country is starving and is so poor makes it a ripe recruiting ground for violent militias. And violent militias have a tendency to aggravate the cycle of poverty and so on and so on and so on. That was very hard for me to hear. In some ways, Nahid's hope in some ways seems to be based on the fact that a society can't exist without women. Well, God, I hope we don't get to that point. So again, for me, it was an eye-opening book, a painfully eye-opening book. I think an important book. I think these women's voices are really important. I think one of the things, too, that sort of depressed me as a reader is when we asked her about the Afghan writers that Americans should be reading. I don't know any of them. I should. I am not as much of an international reader as I should be. And given how important these these countries and these cultures are to our current events, why am I not reading their more important authors as part of the conversation? So we will put those names on our information about the podcast so that you can look up these important writers and you can join this conversation. And she issues a warning, you know, the restriction of women's rights are occurring in other countries around the world, including the United States. So Nahid Shahalimi. I'd love to just end on a quote that she writes at the end of her prologue, which I think is sort of the thesis of why this book is so important to read. Listen to these women, she says. See them. See their commitment to freedom and to their rights. See them in a new light. They are not victims. They never were. They do not need regrets. They need a platform. They need support. They need solidarity. I hope anybody who picks up this book offers them that. We will give you a list, as we always do, of those who work on the podcast. Make it what it is. And we will let Nahid take us off the air. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. The narrative must be informed by Afghans, in particular Afghan women experts.